Welcome to the Seamland podcast. I'm your host Seamland. In this episode, I'm going to play you one of the chapters of my book Stronger by Stress, the audiobook. It talks about the effects of cold and heat exposure through hormesis. If you want to get the full audiobook or learn more about this, then check out the show notes at my website seamland.com forward slash 218. That's seamland.com forward slash 218. This episode is brought to you by Katsu Training. Katsu bands incorporate blood flow moderation training that trick the body into thinking that it's lifting heavier weights than it actually is. When traditional weightlifting requires you to reach 70 to 80% of your one repetition maximum to stimulate muscle hypertrophy, then Katsu achieve that effect only at 20 to 30%. So it's perfect for treating injuries or use when you don't have access to heavy weights. Research about Katsu bands also shows it lowers blood pressure, speeds up recovery from injuries, releases stem cells, builds muscle, burns fat, and prevents age-rated muscle loss. These things are a game-changer, and I use them almost every day. If you want to try out the Katsu cycle bands, then use the code SEAM for a 10% discount at katsu-global.com. That's katsu-global.com, and the 10% code is SEAM, S-I-I-M. Chapter 6 of heat and cold adaptation. Because, as it turns out, exposing your body to less than comfortable temperatures is another very effective way to turn on your longevity genes. David A. Sinclair Okay, I now officially don't feel my toes anymore, said the high school version of me at the back of an open cargo truck. We had already been driving for about two hours at a temperature of minus 30 degrees Celsius or minus 22 Fahrenheit, and there was about as much time to go. Even worse, the wind was howling from all angles, penetrating the bones of me and my companions. I was at the back of an army unimog transporting a small squad of eight sharpshooters which I belonged to. There was an entire company of us from different battalions in other trucks heading to the same location. We were chosen to get our advanced training from actual snipers. It was one of the coldest feelings I've had to endure in my life. Several hours of being completely jackhammered, a condition in which you can't stop shaking and thinking I was going to lose my toes. One of the guys from another truck almost did when he fell into a small pond during a toilet break. Being the fool he was, he didn't tell this to anyone and continued to ride along as if nothing had happened. When we had reached our destination, his toes were literally blue and he had to be transported to a local hospital. Fortunately, he kept all of his extremities. When we arrived at our then-to-be-home for the next week, none of us felt better. It was the pit of an abandoned strip mine with a stone floor and a wind tunnel. The temperatures were as unforgiving as minus 30 degrees Celsius and it got even down to minus 35 at midnight. And yeah... We had to do night patrol for at least an hour until we could change shifts with someone else. Sleeping in a tent with a small stove was the only time we could stop shivering and enjoy a brief moment of warmth. During the day, we trained sharpshooting, the details of which I won't get into. Basically, camouflage, aka lying motionless in the snow and trying to crawl towards a target, measuring distances with binoculars, making landscape maps by drawing on a piece of paper, firing long distances and so much more. The unfortunate part was that you were much more accurate than successful if you didn't have any gloves on. It was much more effective to pull the trigger with your bare fingers, but the consequences were also higher. Even several years afterward, my fingers tend to flare up with redness during the winter when they're exposed to the cold, resembling some mild neuropathy. Nevertheless, it was something I had to do in order to be a good sharpshooter. 
Time spent in a military sparked my interest in coal exposure and how humans have managed to adapt to various climates. Me and my squad were constantly either drenched in the rain, sleeping underneath a tree, crawling through snow, making our way through the swamp, crossing waist-deep rivers, or just walking for hours through the forest in the middle of a cold winter night. It definitely conditioned me to handle any kind of temperatures I might come across, but it also taught me unknowingly how the human body responds to stress. In this chapter, I'm going to talk about the science of cold exposure and what's the hormesis protocol for practicing it yourself. The other side of the coin is heat and humidity, which I'm not a stranger to either. We'll cover the benefits of taking a sauna, what kind of other high-temperature hormetics you can try, and how to adapt to thermal stress. Cold exposure and cold shock Living organisms have evolved many mechanisms for dealing with environmental stressors and changing conditions. During cold shock, cell membrane and enzyme activity decrease, and you reduce the efficiency of mRNA translation and transcription. Everything kind of slows down. Kolchak proteins are multifunctional RNA-DNA binding proteins characterized by Kolchak domains that fix misfolded proteins and RNA. They're one of the most evolutionarily conserved proteins found in virtually all organisms. In humans, the predominant proteins from Kolchak domains are the Y-box protein family. The most known of them is Y-box protein 1, Y by 1. It's a potential target in cancer therapy. Other Kolchak proteins in humans are LIN28, calcium-regulated heat-stable protein 1, or CAR-HSP1, PIPIN, and upstream of NRAS, UNR. The human body tries to maintain a homeostatic temperature around 36 to 37 degrees Celsius, or 98 degrees Fahrenheit. Deviations disrupt homeostasis and cause adaptive changes to stay in that range. Proper conditioning leads to increased tolerance and stress adaptation through hormesis you'll begin to tolerate either a higher or lower climate based on the exposure your body has received. Cold metabolism creates two types of reactions. Insulative actions, redirection of blood away from the extremities, and metabolic actions, increased metabolic rate to produce heat. If one of them is limited, i.e. you're not shivering, then the other will compensate for it by raising metabolism. Insulative reactions include things like goosebumps, seeking warmth, and decreased blood flow. Once insulative reactions are exhausted, the body recruits non-shivering adaptive thermogenesis, which regulates mitochondrial uncoupling and energy production in skeletal muscle. Shivering burns mostly fatty acids, but in higher intensities can also tap into glycogen. When cells experience stress related to coldness, they activate cold shock proteins, which begin to regulate gene expression. Here are the benefits of cold exposure. Cold exposure increases norepinephrine, which promotes focus, vigilance, attention, and mood. Taking cryotherapy for three weeks has been shown to lower depression and anxiety in people with depressive disorders. This heightened adrenaline is useful during some parts of the day, but not chronically, especially not at night. Coldness can decrease inflammation seen in arthritis. Patients with arthritis report significant reductions in pain by just taking a two-minute cold shower every day for a week. Taking an ice bath or a cold shower is amazing for reducing muscle soreness or any pains. It's great for recovery as well as making you more supple again. Therapeutic cold therapy can help with neurodegenerative disease by suppressing neuronal apoptosis and inflammation. One of the proteins, CAR-HSP1, binds to and stabilizes tumor necrosis factor. Cooling babies to 33 degrees Celsius for three days after birth is used to treat hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or poor oxygenation in the brain. 
It reduces brain damage and increases the infant's chances of survival. Cold increases adiponectin, which is a protein that helps with blood sugar regulation. Coldness also promotes glucose uptake, similar to GLUT4, and can be used to prevent type 2 diabetes. Sitting in a room at 58 degrees Fahrenheit for 2 to 6 hours a day for 10 days improves insulin sensitivity in type 2 diabetes by 43%. Cold shock protein YB1 is important for embryonic development and survival. UNR maintains the pluripotent state of embryonic stem cells. Mild algidity signals the body how to prepare for the environment in which it will find itself in. From an allostatic perspective, it ought to equip one to handle any potential drops in average temperature, i.e. the winter, seasonality, or an unexpected ice age. Coldness activates brown adipose tissue, which improves mitochondrial functioning, metabolism, and thermoregulation. It increases energy expenditure and metabolic rate. Cold exposure stimulates lipid metabolism, burns white adipose tissue, and decreases triglycerides. UCP1, or thermogenin, gets increased, which promotes stress adaptation, redox balance, and browning of white fat into brown fat. A 10-day experiment on obese men showed that sitting in a cold room at 58 degrees Fahrenheit for 6 hours a day increased their metabolic rate by 14%. Another study put 11 young lean men into a cold room at 67 degrees Fahrenheit while wearing a cooling vest of 62 degrees Fahrenheit for about 19 minutes. After just 30 minutes, their metabolic rate had increased by 16.7%, with fat burning rising by 72.6%. There is a hypothesis called uncoupling to survive, which suggests that increased mitochondrial uncoupling and thus increased energy expenditure might increase longevity by preventing the formation of reactive oxygen species. Expression of uncoupling protein 1, UCP1, in skeletal muscle increases lifespan considerably. UCP1, or thermogenin, is an uncoupling protein found in the mitochondria of brown adipose tissue that's used to generate heat through non-shivering thermogenesis. Fasting, exercise, heat and cold exposure promote UCP1, which in turn increases heat shock proteins and lipid metabolism. Sleeping in slightly colder temperatures improves sleep onset, time spent in deep sleep and overall sleep satisfaction. It can also help with the production of melatonin and regulation of the circadian clock. In my opinion, sleeping in a hot environment is almost impossible and very uncomfortable. The best night's sleep I ever had was during the military, when we were forced to crawl into a fetal position to get our shut-eye. Winter swimming lowers uric acid and increases glutathione, which promotes detoxification and the body's antioxidant system. Immersion in modestly cold water lowers heart rate, cortisol, systolic blood pressure and inflammation after the fact. It's also been shown to improve general well-being and activate brown fat. However, it also increases oxidative stress and lipid peroxidation in the short term as a way of adapting to the stressor. Cold exposure activates the immune system similar to exercise and can strengthen immunity. In rats, the cold predisposes sickness to infections, but there is no link in humans. A daily hot to cold shower for 30 days resulted in a 29% lower self-reported absence from work due to sickness in healthy adults. There was no difference in illness days. I want to take a closer look at a study of about one hour immersions into waters of different temperatures, 32 degrees Celsius, 20 degrees Celsius, and 14 degrees Celsius. At 32, rectal temperature and metabolic rate didn't change, but heart rate lowered by 15%. Plasma renin activity, plasma cortisol, and aldosterone concentrations were also lowered by 46%, 34%, and 17%, which regulate your blood pressure. 
diuresis was increased by 107%. 20 degrees Celsius caused a similar decrease in plasma renin activity, but metabolic rate increased by 93%. 14 degrees Celsius raised heart rate and systolic and diastolic blood pressure by 5%, 7% and 8% respectively. So did diuresis by 163% and aldosterone 23%, while cortisol decreased. Now for the real kicker. Immersion in 14 degrees Celsius water for one hour increased metabolic rate by 350%, norepinephrine by 530% and dopamine by 250%. That's pretty damn amazing. A storm of neurotransmitters and excitement, that kind of wokeness I prefer. When E. coli are exposed from 37 degrees Celsius to 10 degrees, they experience a 4-5 to five hour lag phase, after which they resume growth at a reduced rate. During the lag phase, the expression of culture proteins increases by 2-10 to fold. This is similar to the dour stage in roundworms or metabolic hibernation that may have anti-aging effects. It's been found by Miguel et al. 1976 that flies who live at 21 degrees Celsius rather than 27 degrees Celsius live twice as long, and those who live in 18 degrees Celsius three times longer. There's a linear association between survival and time spent at 21 degrees Celsius or lower. Roundworms who live in 5 degrees lower temperatures have a 75% increase in lifespan. Many studies in insects find a negative relationship between temperature and lifespan. However, this doesn't entail a freezing, infertile and fragile life as one might think. The same study by Miguel et al. showed that cooler conditions increased vitality as expressed by mating. Hotter temperatures like 27 degrees Celsius show a substantially lower rate of copulation than cooler ones. Of course, this is a study done on flies, but it at least refutes the idea that living in slightly harsher conditions immediately disables the possibility to have sex or anything the like. Cold shock triggers the assembly of stress granules in mammals, which are implicated in many neurodegenerative diseases. They form when mitochondrial RNA translation is stalled or blocked. When the breakdown of stress granules is defective, the granules that would undergo autophagy become lysosomes instead. The accumulation of these stress granules can promote disease. Even if you are doing cold therapy, it's important to have adequate autophagy because it will help to eliminate the stress granules that assemble during stress. Perhaps doing cold exposure while fasting with elevated autophagy is better for quick elimination of these stress granules and aggregates. That might also explain why most people may react negatively to any form of temperature stress or hormesis. It's because their basal autophagy is already too low due to inhibiting it with diet and eating too frequently. This, in turn, leads to the accumulation of stress granules that would be removed by autophagy otherwise, thus leading to potential disease or other side effects. Both cold and heat stress have similar properties, such as hormesis, thermoregulation, reduced inflammation and improved cardiovascular functioning. Heat shock proteins can also induce autophagy. However, exposure to cold doesn't increase autophagy directly. It can encourage it through other pathways, which we'll talk about later in this chapter. Foxor proteins are transcription factors that regulate longevity through the insulin and insulin-like growth factor signaling. They're activated by hormetic stressors like fasting, calorie restriction, exercise, heat and cold. Foxor3 induces Foxor1-dependent autophagy, activating the AKT1 signaling pathway. Foxo transcription factors promote autophagy in cardiomyocytes. AMPK, another stress adaptation sensor, contributes to autophagy maturation and lysosomal fusion. 
This regulates autophagy through mTOR and ULK1. Combining ice baths or cold showers with saunas is an amazing way to boost the effectiveness of the heat. Winter swimming with saunas has been shown to trigger hormetic adaptation as well as increase lysosomal enzymes. Exposure to mild cold and rewarming induces autophagy. Kolchak proteins and heat increase a protein called LC3, which is associated with the inner membrane of autophagosomes and increased autophagy. However, too much stress and cold can have really bad side effects. LIN28, one of the Kolchak proteins in humans, can promote cancer stem cells. YB1 can also promote pancreatic cancer metastasis. It might have to do with how freezing thermogenesis accumulates stress granules in the absence of autophagy. In that case, the risk of negative side effects would be much lower in already healthy people with sufficient metabolic flexibility. However, we should still be wary of all the potential consequences, even if you are on point. So here are the other negative side effects of cold exposure you should be aware of. Cold water immersion before exercise decreases maximum power output, heart rate and overall performance in elite cyclists. You want your muscles to be warmed up and supple to prevent injuries. Some studies show that cold therapy can reduce muscle soreness after exercise, but systematic reviews find no significant difference. Personally, I do feel that they work amazing for accelerated recovery, but I know it can come at a cost. Post-workout cold water immersion can attenuate the anabolic signaling and long-term adaptations in muscle to strength training. It's similar to antioxidants that block the ROS and inflammation which you need in some amounts to make the body adapt. That's why I'm never taking cold showers or anything similar after a workout. Cold exposure burns calories and increases metabolic rate, but it can also make you hungrier. It doesn't matter how much fat you're burning if you still compensate for it by overeating. Furthermore, if you overdo the cold or become stressed out, then you can also lower thyroid functioning and slow down the metabolism. Although the cold doesn't appear to directly suppress immunity, it might do so when combined with high physical exertion or overexposure. Intense exercise is known to transiently decrease immune functioning. So, if you deplete your adaptive energy with cold exposure, you may just get sick more easily. Especially if you get exposed to the wind or a draft afterward. Viruses are more stable in colder and drier conditions, which makes them survive for longer. Influenza strands prefer winter climate, which is why we experience them seasonally. Human rhinoviruses, like the common cold, replicate more effectively at temperatures lower than 37 degrees Celsius. So, if you're constantly freezing or hypothyroid, your body may cool down to below 36 degrees Celsius, which makes it easier for viruses to survive. This is another reason a higher metabolic rate and thyroid functioning are beneficial. Cooling yourself down during a fever may lower your body temperature, but it also blunts some of the healing processes that increased heat is trying to accomplish. Keeping the testicular area between 31 to 37 degrees Celsius or 88 to 99 degrees Fahrenheit improves sperm production and DNA, RNA and protein synthesis. That might explain why the flies engaged in more mating at lower temperatures. However, cold exposure seems to have no effects on testosterone and it may decrease testosterone levels in men. In my opinion, it's due to the increased cortisol and stress. So, you have to be aware of the other stressors in your life. Chronic cold exposure can cause neuropathy in your fingers and toes. That's what I'm still battling with every once in a while because of my army days. During the winter and autumn, my hands tend to flare up and turn red whenever they're exposed to the cold. 
chillblains, frostbite and urticaria are just another phenomenon of this. All these hormetic stressors like fasting, heat and cold are most effective as disease prevention, not treatment. You want to keep doing them while you're already healthy as it'll protect against illness but chronic exposure is not optimal. What's more, they shouldn't be followed in a constantly linear progression, meaning you're constantly increasing the dose. It'll make you more resilient for sure, but at the same time will make it harder to keep making progress and gain the benefits. That's why there are certain situations and times of the year better suited for training as well as recovery. How to do cold exposure The easiest and most obvious place to start will be with cold showers. It will be too difficult to jump straight away to a two-hour ice bath, but if you dedicate yourself completely to this practice, then someday you might be able to pull it off. As you progress through the stages of the cold exercises, you will begin to understand the body on a deeper level. Phase 1. Cold shower after a hot one. Try to control your breaths and lungs. Instead of gasping, breathe with ease. Regular habituation will improve the entire vascular system. Whenever you have a shower, turn it all the way down for at least 10 to 30 seconds and start conditioning yourself that way. There's no reason why not to have this small cold shock. Contrast showers are in my opinion the best ones for training as well as hormesis. You're essentially switching between 10 to 30 seconds of warm water and 10 to 30 seconds of cold. It stimulates the lymph system much better and feels more like a workout rather than complete freezing. In total, you can alternate these contrasts for 2 to 5 minutes, depending on how much time you have for taking a shower. And yeah, always finish with cold. Phase 2. Straight to cold showers. Before you even begin, your body temperature can already drop because of your mind anticipating the shock. Breathe naturally and you'll be able to steer your mind towards adaptation and consciously regulating the autonomic nervous system. Pure force doesn't work because the body will begin to fight back. Having just a cold shower without a warm one is supposed to condition you to endure coldness for longer periods as well as teach your body how to start generating its own heat, both during and afterward. If you come out of a cold shower, your skin is still wet and somewhat chilly. This requires a different kind of mental adaptation. Instead of drying yourself off immediately, let the water evaporate itself or just wipe it off with a light towel. You don't have to take a cold shower every day, but I would try to have one at least once or twice a week, especially if you don't have access to an ice bath or cryo chamber. Phase 3. Cold water immersion. You need to either find a lake, stream, pond, sea or fill up your bathtub with colder water. Adding ice cubes or snow in there might be inconvenient and costly if you have to do it frequently. As a shortcut, you can use pre-packaged ice cubes in bags or dedicate a separate freezer for your plunges. Same kind of breathing, but add in visualizations. Visualize heat generating within your body just before you enter. With every breath, make this sensation more intense and keep your mind focused on the heat. Stay in the cold water for as long as it feels comfortable. If you feel pain or uneasiness, then it's time to get out. It takes at least a minute for the adaptations to set in. On a daily basis, I take a brief contrast shower or a warm one for relaxation. Once or twice a week, or after the sauna, I'll either have an ice bath or just a cold shower. When I was doing polyphasic sleeping for 100 days, I had also been taking a cold shower every morning for two years straight. No excuses. I remember waking up at 1am, 
walking to the shower and shocking myself with some glacial water every day. It was brutal and quite masochistic in hindsight. So, I'm the kind of guy who doesn't recommend purely cold showers because I couldn't tolerate it. I just think a contrast shower is healthier and more effective in stimulating lymph flow and mitigating stress. To maintain control over the core temperature, you have to influence the body by steering the hypothalamus, the thermostat in the brain. Imagine heat in your lower stomach. With each breath, you're inhaling fire that fills your body and exhaling out the cold. Go somewhere warm with the thoughts. There are two parts to resisting cold. The first is physical, the pure fact of getting used to it. When we're habitually conditioned in a way that promotes lower temperatures, then it will gradually have lesser of an effect on us. This can be accomplished by exposing ourselves to the cold weather. The other part is mental, which derives from our perception of the experience. This is also the result of changing our mindset. By default, cold is uncomfortable and associated with pain. It forces us to spend more energy, which the brain is trying to preserve. It's an evolutionary response, which, unfortunately, is working against us most of the time. When we're shivering, we'll inevitably try to run away from the situation by any means necessary. At first, it will not be enjoyable. Our muscles will tense up, we'll start to shiver, our thoughts will scream, let's get the hell out of here, and this is the only our habitual response. Instead of following our reaction, we should experience the cold for what it truly is. Feel the hair of your skin stand up how the wind cuts through our bones, what does breathing in does to our nose, etc. By yielding to the situation and becoming the observer, we can notice ourselves in the midst of it all and take control of our urges. It's an enlightening experience and conditions our willpower in other areas of life. Once we've taken control of our breath, we can do so with the urge to escape the situation. It's the result of becoming conscious in the present moment. The most important thing is to remain calm in both body and mind. Rather than tensing up like we normally would, we need to let loose and yield to the cold. By cramping up, we create a habitual pattern of reaction which will always make the experience uncomfortable. If, however, we begin to interpret it as something enjoyable, then the necessary change in mindset will eventually happen. Part 2. Benefits of sauna and heat shock proteins Next up, I want to cover the opposite of the cold, which is heat exposure. Fortunately, it's something I've developed a close relationship with as well. You see, I'm born and raised in Estonia, where saunas have been a part of the culture for centuries. I recall my first sauna experiences dating back to kindergarten, when me and my brother would sit in the heat. Since that time, I've taken a sauna for at least a once a week for over 20 years. Many cultures have practiced both fasting and some form of heat therapy for over a millennia. Saunas are basically sweat lodges or heated rooms. Nowadays, we have a lot of studies showing their effects on longevity. Hypothermic conditioning, as it's called, has multiple amazing health benefits. Taking a sauna has been shown to improve cardiovascular functioning and lower the risk of heart disease. One of the main killers in modern society are heart disease and strokes. In the US, over 610,000 people die to heart disease every year. That's one out of four deaths. Heart disease is caused by chronic inflammation, too much stress, poor blood circulation, high cholesterol, and not enough exercise. In a Finnish study, people who used the sauna two to three times a week had 22% less chance of dying to a sudden cardiac event than those who used it only once a week. 
those who entered the sauna four to seven times a week were 63% less likely to experience cardiac death and 50% less likely to die from cardiovascular disease compared to those who used it once a week. They were also associated with a 40% reduced risk of all-cause mortality. And that's an increase compared to people who use the sauna only once a week. Imagine what's the increase between people who don't use the sauna at all. Saunas improve insulin sensitivity by increasing the expression of a glucose transporter called GLUT4 that helps to clear the bloodstream from sugar and directs it into muscles. Just 30 minutes of hyperthermic conditioning three times a week for 12 weeks has resulted in 31% reduction in insulin and blood sugar. This can be useful for managing glycemic variability and symptoms of diabetes. Better blood circulation and blood flow to skeletal muscle which can reduce the rate of glycogen depletion and increases the efficiency of oxygen transport to muscles. Hyperthermic conditioning has been shown to reduce muscle glycogen use by 40-50% to 50%, and lower lactate accumulation during exercise. It promotes physical endurance by increasing the heart's stroke volume. 30-minute sauna sessions after working out two times per week for three weeks have been shown to increase the participants' run until exhaustion by 32% compared to baseline. It can also enhance plasma volume by 7.1% and red blood cell count by 3.5%. This not only improves endurance, but can also help with muscle growth and resistance training. Heat adaptation can reduce the amount of protein degradation during exercise, which helps to establish a positive net protein synthesis for the day, resulting in muscle hypertrophy. In rats, 30 minutes of hyperthermic conditioning at 41 degrees Celsius or 105 degrees Fahrenheit increases heat shock proteins in muscles, which correlated with 30% more muscle regrowth than a control group during 7 days after they had been immobilized. Basically, taking an easy sauna helped the rats to regrow their damaged muscles faster. Saunas are amazing for speeding up recovery from exercise and any kind of stress. It helps you lower inflammation created from working out shuts down muscle soreness and also relaxes you completely so your body could switch from the sympathetic mode into the parasympathetic rest and digest mode. This doesn't seem to impair recovery the same way antioxidants or cold exposure does. Heat stress also releases massive amounts of growth hormone, which will inhibit protein breakdown further. Growth hormone stays elevated for several hours after the sauna and it has incredible anti-catabolic effects that prevent muscle breakdown and can promote additional fat burning. If you're going for extended long fasts, then it might be a good idea to take a short sauna in the fastest state to preserve more lean tissue. Saunas strengthen the immune system and increase white blood cell count. It also flushes the lymph system from toxins and pathogens. As a result, you'll get sick less often and have clearer skin. Sweating, in particular, helps to eliminate bioaccumulated toxins, heavy metals and other infectious particles. Sauna therapy has been used to combat influenza since at least the 1950s. One study found that taking the sauna 2 to 3 or more than 4 times a week resulted in a 27% and 41% reduction in respiratory disease compared to those who did it once a week. They also saw a 33% and a 47% reduced risk of pneumonia. The main preventative strategy against typhus in Finland during World War II was a regular sauna. Consistent sauna practice for a few months has been shown to cut episodes of the common cold in half compared to no heat exposure. The World Health Organization has stated that heat at 56 degrees Celsius kills the SARS coronavirus at around 10,000 units per 15 minutes, which is a very significantly rapid reduction.
At room temperature, the virus can remain stable for 1 to 2 days and 21 days at 4 degrees Celsius and minus 80 degrees Celsius. Although the temperature isn't going to get that hot inside your lungs, where the virus lingers, it can still speed up its destruction. During the 2003 SARS pandemic, a Hong Kong doctor noted that higher body temperatures may kill the coronavirus. They saw that patients who had a temperature above 37 degrees Celsius saw a milder immune response and recovered faster compared to those who were below 36 degrees Celsius. A higher fever can kill the virus, which is why it's recommended to not use fever-lowering medication. It's the body's response to dealing with the infection. Hyperthermic conditioning lowers the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. It increases endorphins and beneficial brain neurotrophic factors. Being in a sauna feels like easy cardio that's great for the brain. Saunas make you tired in a good way. It doesn't make you more energized because more often than not, you'd like to take a nap afterward. My sleep scores based on my O-ring are already pretty high, but I notice a consistently high deep sleep from using the sauna. In the past, saunas were used for cleaning and self-washing. It was the cleanest place in the household. Children were given birth in saunas, and the dead were washed in saunas before burial as well. Even some business and political deals are made in the sauna, where everyone is deemed to be equal, especially when you're sitting there naked. When you're exposed to high heat, whether that be in a sauna or while exercising, you're generating mild oxidative stress. The body responds by turning on its defense mechanisms, many of which we've talked about already. Heat shock proteins are a family of proteins that get produced in response to heat stress and they help to adapt to the stress through hormesis. They get released under environmental conditions of inflammation, heat stress, starvation, hypoxia or even water deprivation. Heat shock proteins prevent the accumulation of free radicals and cellular damage. Heat shock proteins repair damaged, misfolded proteins similar to autophagy. Heat shock proteins promote cellular antioxidant capacity with glutathione. Hijak proteins are involved in macrotophagy and cellular turnover. Hijak protein 20 phosphorylation correlates with smooth muscle relaxation and has a significant role in cardiac myocyte function and skeletal muscle insulin response. Hijak protein mediated heat exposure has been shown to increase the lifespan of flies and worms up to 15%. Hormetic heat stress and heat shock factor 1 induce autophagy to improve survival and proteostasis in C. elegans. Worms who are deficient in autophagy fail to benefit from the heat shock, whereas the ones with intact autophagy did. This may indicate a lot of the benefits of heat shock proteins are mediated by autophagy. Furthermore, you can see greater benefits from heat stress with elevated autophagy, as in the case of cold exposure. Mitochondrial autophagy protects against heat shock-induced apoptosis, which makes it even more important for stress adaptation. If you just sit in a sauna while blocking autophagy, you may be causing more cellular damage than necessary. That's why exposure to heat may be less stressful with elevated autophagy similar to the cold. So, I would say that doing some sauna exposure while you're fasting would be probably less stressful and is also better for you in the long term. As with all the practices discussed in this book, the sauna and excessive heat can have some negative side effects. We just have to be aware of them and know where our tolerance lies. Staying in the sauna for too long can cause dehydration, arrhythmia, heat exhaustion, electrolyte imbalances, hypertension and even stroke. If you have cardiovascular issues, then keep the temperatures mild and don't combine it with a cold plunge. There are reports of people getting heart attacks from this sort of a drastic alteration. 
You can also lose a lot of electrolytes and minerals through sweating, especially if you don't hydrate it properly, or you're not getting enough salts. This will add an additional burden on the cardiovascular system, and may manifest as chronic fatigue. I would take at least a half teaspoon of salt mixed in water before a sauna session, and drink plenty of water afterward. In Finland, one out of four burns is sauna-related, and at least one sauna burn a day requires hospitalization. Those crazy Finns with their saunas. These cases aren't usually serious, but one 64-year-old man in Germany fell face-first onto his sauna stove and died from the injuries. It's especially important to ensure you don't fall asleep or pass out in the heat, because you might not wake up again. In 2010, a Russian man named Vladimir Lazizensky died at the Sona World Championships. He was in the finals with the Finnish five-time champion Timo Kaukonen, and they both passed out after 6 minutes of 110 degrees Celsius, or 230 degrees Fahrenheit. Kaukonen survived with severe burn injuries, but Lazizensky had to be dragged out, and he almost immediately went into cramps and convulsions. After this tragedy, the event would no longer be organized. It comes to show how seriously people in Russia and Finland take the sauna. Too much heat, especially around the testicles, can reduce sperm count. If you're concerned, you may want to occasionally splash some cold water onto the testicular region while sitting in a sauna. Taking a sauna during early pregnancy may also cause embryonic or fetal abnormalities. Saunas aren't going to make you burn fat, but you may lose some water weight. The heat and increased heart rate does burn a little bit of calories, but not any more than regular walking. So, you shouldn't think of it as a weight loss tool. Unfortunately, there are reports of people with bulimia combining the sauna with laxatives and diuretics, which made them experience serious dehydration. That can be dangerous and cause body dysmorphia. How to take a sauna? Hypothermia kicks in once body temperature rises above what's normal. In general, it starts at higher than 37.5 degrees Celsius, or 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit. The average temperature for the human body is around 36 to 37 degrees Celsius, or 98 degrees Fahrenheit. From a clinical perspective, fevers are considered significant after they reach 38 degrees Celsius, or 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Hyperthermic conditioning is just a way to stimulate the effects of high heat and elevated core feverishness. The minimal effective dose for thermohomesis appears to be about 38 degrees Celsius. Based on the research I've just outlined, the optimal dose for taking a sauna is about 15 to 30 minute sessions at about 70 degrees Celsius to 100 degrees Celsius, or 156 to 212 degrees Fahrenheit, about 2 to 4 times per week. Even once every 7 days will be better than nothing. Even once a month is still better than nothing. More isn't going to be necessarily better, and you won't gain increasingly more health benefits, especially when it comes to the temperatures. You will only become more resilient against the heat and can physically tolerate it better. If you get too used to the warmth, then you'll have to induce higher stress to gain the effects of hormesis. That's why I don't think it's a good idea to have a sauna every day. Having it a few days apart is probably wiser. Me, I like to have about 30-minute sauna sessions on my rest days to promote recovery from workouts. If I've just done resistance training, then I might hop in for 10 to 15 minutes, but at that point, I don't necessarily want to cause additional heat stress on the muscles, because it may interfere with recovery by shutting down the beneficial adaptation of working out. Although research shows that the heat can accelerate recovery and additional hypertrophy, I choose to be conservative with it post-workout, and more aggressive on rest days. 
In total, I may get about two to three sauna sessions per week. Having a sauna once a week is better than nothing, and you can still gain health benefits. Hell, once a month would be still worth it. In that case, you may want to have a 15 to 20 minute sauna session, followed by a short cooling off, and then another 15 to 20 minute session. Children between the ages of 2 to 15 show similar cardiovascular and hormonal benefits as adults. However, the ability to maintain stroke volume may be impaired in younger children between the ages of 2 to 5 who have the highest heart rate. Generally, it's advised to let children spend only about 5 to 10 minutes in a sauna and have them sit on their lower benches where the temperature isn't that high. That's how I and my brother started as well. You shouldn't drink alcohol before or during the sauna because it can promote stroke and death. The heat itself already increases your heart rate and intoxication from alcohol will raise your blood pressure which can be bad for the heart. I know it's pretty common to have sauna beer and booze here in northern Europe but it's pretty irresponsible. Taking a sauna when sick or with a fever isn't a good idea either because it'll impose too much stress on the body. The fever is already a natural heat shock protein response that tries to heal, but overdoing it is probably harmful. It's important to keep yourself hydrated before and after the sauna as well to prevent dehydration, fainting, hypoglycemia or loss of electrolytes. That's why I have some water nearby to drink in between sessions. However, don't drink the water from sauna buckets. An Algerian university analyzed the water from 10 Turkish baths and found that 50% of them had fecal contamination. Yikes. Lastly, let's talk a bit about the differences between infrared saunas, IR, and regular saunas. The effects of a hot bath or a hot tub are completely different, but they still have some of the benefits of heat shock proteins, so we'll just stick to the saunas. Both improve blood circulation and cardiovascular health. The higher temperatures at a traditional sauna do put more stress on you, which can be great for exercise performance and heat tolerance. However, if you have hypertension or blood pressure issues, then you have to be careful with not overdoing it, because you can easily pass out. Both promote relaxation, reduce inflammation and soreness. They're best taken after a workout, but any other time of the day works. Generally, I like to have it in the afternoon. When it comes to the infrared sauna, then I think you can safely do it every day because it targets a different system and isn't as hot. It's an amazing tool for relaxation and daily detoxification. Both can make you sleep better and speed up recovery. Heat exposure too close to bedtime may disrupt your sleep by keeping your heart rate elevated. Too much heat can keep your body in a stressed out state, so be aware of that. Traditional sauna can be heated up much higher up to 100 degrees Celsius, whereas infrared saunas stay at 60 degrees Celsius. However, at that temperature, you're not getting increased health benefits. You're just making your body endure the heat much more, which has primarily an exercise performance effect, but not deeper detoxification or anything the like. Infrared saunas penetrate deeper into the skin and joints, where they'll trigger mitochondrial density and collagen synthesis. This is better for the skin and cell cleanup. You have to heat the traditional sauna for at least an hour. If you're using firewood or even an electrical stove, you generally have to wait at least 45 to 60 minutes until the temperature in your room reaches the right zone. Otherwise, you're just sitting in a cold room with no clothes on. The benefits of infrared saunas come from the infrared wavelengths that don't require a specific temperature to work. Generally, it takes about 30 to 45 minutes for the infrared sauna to reach 60 degrees Celsius, but you could even just sit in there right after turning it on and still get the collagen benefits from the wavelengths. 
It's just that most people prefer to sweat a little bit as well, which is why they'll wait until the temperature is around 50 to 60 degrees Celsius. However, most infrared lamps emit a small amount of electromagnetic radiation, which doesn't make sitting in a cubicle that attractive. The best low EMF brands are Clearlight and Sauna Space. They can be fit in small compartmental spaces much better than traditional saunas, but nothing beats a good wooden heated sauna. When it comes to steam rooms and hot baths, then they can reduce inflammation, induce relaxation, flush out some toxins, and release heat shock proteins. However, their effect is probably modest compared to an actual sauna. Nevertheless, inhaling steam is probably better for the respiratory tract and general breathing. The dark side of steam rooms and public saunas is that there's a lot more microbes, fungus and pathogens. That's why you should wear flip-flops and use soap to clean yourself up afterward. In fact, one man reported fever and chills after regular sauna use because he poured water over the sauna stove from a bucket that contained mold. Fortunately, the contraction of sexually transmitted diseases via sauna bench surfaces is deemed to be highly unlikely in countries of high-level hygiene. In conclusion, I think everyone would benefit from some form of hypothermic conditioning or sauna regularly. You don't have to do it every day, but at minimum two times a week would be great. Nowadays, I'm still using the infrared sauna almost every day, and I have the traditional sauna maybe two times a week. But what if you don't have access to a sauna? Are you forever doomed to premature aging, cardiovascular disease, and high toxicity? Definitely not. There are many other strategies to turn on the same pathways as the sauna does. The idea is to increase heat shock proteins and cause hypothermia through other means. Here are the easiest examples of how to sauna without a sauna. Higher body temperature. As was shown by the SARS study, a higher temperature can accelerate the killing of viruses. Heat shock proteins will be recruited in response to rising heat stress. Having a fever isn't the same as taking a sauna but a higher body temperature would increase the basal heat shock protein response. You can turn on the heating up to 20 degrees Celsius and wear warmer clothes. A faster metabolic rate through cyclical ketosis instead of chronic ketosis will also raise body temperature and energy expenditure. Physical exercise. The body turns on heat shock proteins during exercise and they're needed to gain the benefits. Both cardio and resistance training will do. Cardio ends up raising your body temperature and promotes sweating, while sub-maximal resistance training stimulates heat shock proteins in the muscle and can improve insulin resistance. Eccentric contractions, such as the negative portion of the lifts or running, have been shown to increase more heat shock proteins. You should do something physical for at least 30 minutes a day and get the sweat on. If you don't have access to a gym, you can do calisthenics, blood flow restriction training or jumping jacks in one place. Isometric contractions Contracting the muscle near your maximum effort releases heat shock proteins and raises body temperature. That's why doing yoga or calisthenics is a simple way of getting similar benefits from less time. You can hold planks, front levers, deep lunges, horse stance, planches, etc. If you take it to near failure and end up holding a position for about 30 to 60 seconds, then you'll start to sweat and generate heat quite profusely. Longer fasting. Fasting increases heat shock proteins in response to the stress. It also improves lipid profile and lowers triglycerides. Although your metabolic rate may drop slightly during the fast, you'll experience a higher rebound after breaking the fast. Water deprivation. Dehydration causes heat stress and upregulates autophagy by inhibiting mTOR signaling. I'm not recommending you do dry fasting if you lack the experience, but it can still turn on heat shock proteins without exercise or without going to the sauna. 
it might be a shortcut for getting the benefits of heat and exercise in situations where you don't have access to those things. Sun exposure. UV light stimulates heat shock proteins in a dose-dependent manner. Higher intensities and luxes release more because the body tries to protect itself and repair the damage. Regular walking outside and getting exposed to the sun will not lead to an overexpression or damage, but sunbathing might. You should try to spend at least an hour or two outside, where the light environment is brighter to synchronize the circadian rhythms, but using blue light face lamps can also be useful for that. Spicy food and spices. Different herbs and spices like cayenne pepper, curry, peppers, ginger, ginseng and garlic can raise your metabolic rate and body temperature. That's an indirect way of boosting some heat or proteins as well. Using spices as seasoning on food will definitely make you hot and even sweat. You can also mix them into hot water or just take them by themselves. Sauna and hot baths. Exposure to higher temperatures than normal will upregulate heat shock proteins. I think it will do so in a linear fashion, meaning higher temperatures will lead to more heat shock proteins, but more isn't always better. Even a warm shower can increase heat shock proteins slightly, but your body will eventually adapt to that heat and it becomes less effective. That's why an actual sauna or a sweat lodge will be still more powerful. Anything that involves the heat stress response system will be accompanied by an upregulation of heat shock proteins. They start repairing the damage and also upregulate the body's resilience for the future. In general, I think you should want to raise your body temperature several times during the day to keep the metabolism going. Working out for at least 30 minutes daily is the first thing you can do, but some other forms of heat, whether from drinking tea, eating spicy food, taking the stairs or doing jumping jacks, are also fine. So here's the hot and cold stress protocol. The benefits of cold exposure start at about 6 degrees Celsius below comfort, which is around 16 degrees Celsius or 60 degrees Fahrenheit. It can increase energy expenditure by 4 to 6%. Most cryotherapy facilities and ice baths tend to drop lower than that. As you get more advanced, this number may decrease slightly, but you don't need to keep pushing your adaptation to get the minimum effective dose. Lower temperatures will just increase stress adaptation, fat burning and cold tolerance, but it may have negative side effects. Signs of too much cold exposure include not feeling the benefits anymore, low thyroid, stubborn fat loss, problems sleeping, anxiety, constant shivering and getting sick easily. Taking a contrast shower every day is a quick and easy way to get daily cold therapy. Just alternate between hot and cold for a few minutes, but always finish with cold. Going for an ice bath or polar plunge once a week should be enough, but you can condition yourself to do it every day as well. Going to the sauna in a fasted state promotes deeper cellular detox and autophagy. Autophagy also helps to mitigate the potential damage from heat shock proteins by promoting repair. It also prevents the accumulation of stress granules that accumulate when you're exposed to the cold. Therefore, doing hot and cold therapy while fasting is better. Just don't get dehydrated or push yourself to the point of faint. Rewarming the body after cold exposure leads to additional autophagy. Try to get a sauna at least once or twice a week. Doing it every day is probably too much, but you can alternate between the infrared and traditional sauna to avoid any negative adaptations. Taking niacin or beta-alanine before a sauna creates a flushing effect that can increase sweating, blood flow and lymph stimulation. Just make sure you're hydrated enough because otherwise there isn't enough water to form sweat. Drinking water afterwards is also important. Don't drink alcohol or take any other drugs before or during hot cold therapy. You'll put yourself in danger and at a higher risk of passing out. Thermal adaptations aren't permanent and they will soon diminish with disuse. 
That's why some form of hot and cold therapy should be a regular part of your weekly hormesis if you want to maintain this kind of temperature tolerance. Alright, that's it for this episode. If you want to get the full audiobook or learn more about this, then check out the show notes at seamlan.com forward slash 218. That's seamlan.com forward slash 218. Thanks for listening. My name is Seam. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.